0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit christpres.org. Our
1: scripture reading today is from Acts twenty-two thirty through Acts twenty-three one through eleven. Acts twenty-two thirty through Acts 23, 1 through 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God
0: good morning friends uh, if we haven't met my name is Nate Evans I'm our director of students and families here at Christ Pres. Cool Springs Uh, It's a joy to be with you and an honor to get to preach from God's word. So as we get started, uh, a few questions for you. Have you ever felt uh, very misunderstood? Have you ever been accused maybe of something you didn't do? Or maybe here's one we can all relate to. Have you ever been interrupted repeatedly when trying to speak? Just kind of steamrolled. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, it might be a silly example, but I think of uh, back in my eighth-grade year, my class took a trip to D.C. Maybe some of y'all took that trip, and I remember the first place we went after we landed was this famous eatery called Ben's Chili Bowl. It's one of those spots where, like, it's the walls are covered with photos of like every celebrity and person of notoriety that's like ever eaten there, right? And so as we're getting in there, I had a relatively small class. Everyone's sitting at the tables, and, uh, you know, most of the guys are sitting together at a table, and I'm finding that kind of all the seats are taken up. And so uh, I'm sure in uh, great teenage angst and melancholy, I, you know, kind of walked past them, and I'm sure Christmas time is here was playing uh, over me. (laughs) And as I just sort of walked past and sullenly began to take my seat, a couple of my friends who were right right next there at that next table thought, you know, it's a good time to play a prank. And they were going to pull the chair right out from under me. And totally unaware of this, I sat down and just, ooh, I I just hit the floor. And I felt like I, like, cracked my tailbone. And everyone kind of looks. They heard, you know... And I'm just like, both in the pain and embarrassment, I'm trying to just like not cry. Don't put the tear back. Like, don't do it. And I'm and I'm finally stand up, and uh, one of the chaperones stands up and comes over kind of at the little bit of commotion and is like, what's going on here? And as I'm tr- trying to, you know, get some words out and hold back the tears, and I'm about to speak, and she cuts me off. No, no, no. No, no, no. And she begins to to give me the business. She begins to scold me like I was the one who did everything wrong. And I'm like, I'm the victim. And and, and it's a silly example, but I I felt in this instance totally misunderstood, accused of something I didn't do, and kind of just steamrolled, just interrupted, right? Have you felt this way? Because uh, as, as we're seeing in this passage and in previous weeks, the Apostle Paul knows what this is like, right? He is in this series of events of misunderstandings and false accusations and just getting interrupted time and again, steamrolled. And I'm sort of like, why, why is this happening to Paul? Is it just because the, the world is a broken place? You know, life isn't fair, Or perhaps is there something deeper going on? Is it perhaps possible that the Lord is very much at work in and through Paul's suffering? And so two questions I want to pose for us to kind of frame our time in the text. The first of which is, what has God called Paul to? What has God called Paul to? And the second, what has the Lord called us to? And so I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to turn right to our text and dig in. Let me me pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift that it is to be a part of this church. Thank you for your word. And I just ask, Lord, that you would teach us. Uh, and that you would, Lord, uh, in any ways that you see fit, would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would you strengthen us? We just, we offer ourselves to you now. And I, too, Lord, want to pray for all those traveling um, over Over this fall break, would you bring them home safely, Lord? And continue to think of Israel. Uh, We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Acts 22, verse 30, if you want to have your Bible open and following along, we're going to be very much in the text. So here's what it says. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, that is Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so big picture, big picture. The book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is uh, sort of this history of the early church, right? Uh, it's, it's the second of a two-part work, the first of which is the Gospel according to Luke. And so Luke, who was a physician and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, he wrote both of these, right? And as the gospel of Luke ends and Acts begins, uh, we see the resurrected Jesus commission his apostles, his disciples who knew and saw him, to to go out and spread the good news of Jesus to to all nations, right? He's commissioned them. And so we can wonder, how, how has the gospel made it here to Franklin, Tennessee? Why are we here this morning? Well, it all started here with those who knew and followed Jesus sharing the good news, And so in the past few weeks, we've been reading about Paul on his third missionary journey. And uh, he's at Jerusalem now. And he's been seeking to build rapport with the Jerusalem church. And he's in this week-long ritual of sorts called the Nazarite vow. And uh, in the midst of this, towards the end of it, these Jews from, from Asia see him and begin to accuse him of... Of teaching against Jewish law and defiling the temple by, they think that he brought his uh, Gentile Ephesian friend Trophimus in. So they're, they're rioting. And so they drag Paul out of the temple and they are beating him until uh, the Roman authorities show up. They're just around the corner. Right? And so they arrest Paul and the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias. He's trying to figure out from the mob, like, what has Paul done? And so he's asking them, but people are shouting all sorts of different things. He can't make heads from tails. And so they're going to take him into the barracks until Paul stops him and he asks, Can I speak to the people for a moment? And after realizing that he's not the Egyptian revolutionary that they thought, he, he grants Paul permission. And so he begins to speak. In Hebrew, mind you. And he begins to tell his testimony, basically. How kind of recounting the events of Acts 9 and following, how the man Saul was converted to Paul, how this man who was one of the leading persecutors of the Christian church became over time one of the leaders of the Christian church. Right? And so he's he's telling them about how the risen Jesus appeared to him and recounting these events and the people maybe seem to be nodding along with him in some way, kind of with him to a certain degree until a very particular word comes out of Paul's mouth. Gentile. And then the, the mob just sort of uproars again and, and the Romans take him finally into the barracks for his safety again, trying to figure out what has this man done. They're about to torture him, examine him by flogging, until Paul brings up the, you know, somewhat uh, important fact that he is, in fact, a Roman citizen, which makes them kind of shake in their sandal boots. They're like, oh my goodness. And here's why. is because, again, the Roman authorities had two job descriptions. It's to maintain justice and to protect the Roman citizens. And so had Paul not spoken up, they would have failed both parts of their job description pretty quick, right? And so, again, the the, the Roman tribune is like, what has Paul done? He's trying to figure out the real reason. Why do these Jews want Paul dead? And I'll note for us briefly, there may be some similarities here between Paul and the Roman tribune and that of Pontius Pilate and Jesus on the way to his crucifixion. Just sort of lock that away. So the Roman authorities, they summon the chief priests and the council, also known as the Sanhedrin, who dealt with weighty Jewish matters, which is kind of actually abnormal for Rome to summon the Sanhedrin. But they're hoping maybe they can shed some light on the situation. And that's where we find ourselves here in the text. Picking up in 23.1 and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And I have to pause here for just a moment. Because does it surprise anyone else that Paul, formerly Saul, is saying that he has lived his whole life in all good conscience? What? <laughs> Isn't this the same guy who, who I mean, he just... Gave his testimony, who persecuted the Christian church in awful ways, who was standing there nodding in approval as the first Christian martyr was murdered before him. Isn't this the same guy who called himself the chief of all sinners because of these heinous things? How in the world does he have a clear conscience? And that's a good question. Technically speaking, Paul did have a clear conscience because. At the time of those events, he thought that he was doing the right thing. Right? I think of a, a song by John Mayer, an artist I, I like, he, that says uh, in one of his songs, did you know that you can be wrong and swear you're right? This is a helpful reminder to us that while our consciences can be really helpful in, in helping us to do what we believe is right and to not do what we believe is wrong. What our consciences are unable to do is to tell us objectively and without fail what is truly, truly right and wrong, right? Only God's infallible word can do that. And so uh, just a quick word of exhortation on that note. If you ever find yourself in friction in some way with God's word, I would encourage you, implore you even, to ask the Lord, to ask even trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Or even uh, Psalm 139 comes to mind, right? That says what? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Turning back to our text in verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So I don't know if this is surprising to you. But again, just to recount, Paul has said simply, I've always done what I thought was right. And within moments, the, the high priest commands Paul to be struck on the mouth. And I'll remind you that we're not reading a scene from The Godfather, right? This is not a mob boss. This, is, this isn't just a priest. This is the high priest who's commanding Paul to be struck. And so what does Paul say in response He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, which sounds actually pretty familiar, similar to some choice words that Jesus had for the scribes and Pharisees, right? He said, he called them whitewashed tombs. The idea being that the outside might look nice, pristine and white, but what is on the inside is only death. Right? And so I think Jesus and Paul are both appealing to the same text of Ezekiel 13, the point of which is, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Do you see the irony here, right? Paul brings it up. He's on trial, why? To determine if he is a good Jewish law-abiding citizen. Right? He's on trial for that. And within moments of this trial beginning, one of the judges, the lead judge of sorts, breaks the very law that they, you know, claim to care so much about, right? And so Paul, I think, has Leviticus 19.15 in mind. He says, which says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So the great irony is that Paul seems to know the law, or at least care more about upholding the law, than his his judges. Irony. So others in the assembly speak up to what Paul just said to the high priest. He didn't know, apparently, it was the high priest. And so those who stood by said in verse 4, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Again, quoting God's law, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28. Paul is showing, without a shadow of a doubt, he cares about the Jewish law and upholding it, right? And then he kind of does this apology of sorts. Maybe he's being ironic, maybe not, but, you know, we may find no issue in his retort. We may even like it in a way, and I think the The instinct to boldly oppose immoral leadership, that's a good instinct. But I think even in a way, as Paul is quoting God's law, he's recognizing that there is a right way and a wrong way to speak to and speak about those in leadership and authority above us. Something for us to consider. I'm picking up in verse 6 through 10. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose. There's a lot of clamoring. (laughs) And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So what's going on here? Is Paul is Paul trying to be a little mischievous? Is he kind of like trying to throw in a little theological smoke bomb? and like sneak out the back, kind of bring in something from left field so that they kind of forget that he's on trial and just go at each other? And I'm like, maybe, maybe he's doing that, but I'm I'm not so sure. Again, we can tell from verse 6 that Paul, he perceives that the council has two major parties being represented, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Luke, the writer, helps us to see right here in the text some major categorical differences between the two, right? The Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. There is no resurrection, they say, which is why they're so sad, you see. And so the Sadducees, no resurrection, right? But the Pharisees, they believe in all of these things. They believe in a resurrection and, and spirits and, uh, you know, angels. They, they believe in a spiritual realm. And so, so there's, there's this distinction between these two parties, right? The Sadducees, these theological moderners of their day, they, kind of, they, they don't believe so much in that spiritual reality. They believe in this physical, natural world, believing in what can only be you know, observed and measured, which doesn't sound too unlike you know, our culture today. And this is obviously a very different understanding from the Sadducees who do believe in this spiritual realm, who, who believe and understand God's word in a very different way, Right? And Paul, he knows, he understands the nuances of this long-standing debate, right? And so when he says, I'm a Pharisee, I was born as one, raised by one, educated as one, he's clearly trying to get any in the room who might hear him out to, to listen. And so here's my question is, is it possible, is it possible that Paul, even in the midst of this unjust trial, is looking for yet another opportunity To share the good news of Jesus is that possible is it possible that rather than simply set off a little doctrinal grenade and slip out the back that he he cares for those who are here i think it's very possible very possible Because that's what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, right? The apostles, because they were commissioned by Jesus to do so, are looking for any and every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen. Jews, Gentiles, mobs that want their head, and maybe even here, powerful and influential Jewish leaders. And what is the core of that message? What is the core of the gospel? Paul says, the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Paul is telling the Sanhedrin, brothers, this debate about the existence of a spiritual reality beyond this physical world, it's not some out-of-left-field tertiary theological debate. It is foundational for us understanding the truth. You need to know, you need to be open at least to the fact that this, this world, this life is not all there is. There are angels, there are spirits, there's a spiritual realm, and yes, there is a resurrection. A resurrection of the dead. What, is, what does that mean? What is he talking about? The resurrection of the dead is this belief that there will be a day when all those who love God and are in his covenant family, they'll be raised from the dead. There'll be a day when sin and death will be no more. There is a hope. And that's our hope, by the way. And it would have been the hope of the Pharisees. Resurrection, the resurrection is central to the gospel message. If there is no resurrection, friends, there's no good news, (laughs) right? If this life is all there is and when we die, that's it. We of all people are most to be pitied. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes in depth talking about the resurrection and this hope that we have. Helping us see, he says in there, everything that, that we believe as Christians, it hinges upon what? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus' life, his, his teaching, his miracles, they, they, they all point to his true identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and his coming kingdom, right? His, his healings, though, what are those about? When he's healing so many people, is he just showing his compassion? Is Jesus just showing that he has incredible power? Both of those things are true, but there's something deeper. Every time Jesus healed someone, it's a sermon in a picture. He is showing what his coming kingdom will be like. He is appealing to the restoration that will come when he comes again. For all those who trust in his name. Both the living and the dead. But nothing, nothing affirms and confirms the reality of who Jesus is than his resurrection if the resurrection of the dead is true, if we know these things are true, if we believe that this life is not all there is, if we believe that like Jesus was raised with this glorified heavenly body that's both incorruptible and imperishable, and that we too will have a body like his, which I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like (laughs) to live where aches and pains and the effects of sin are no more. If we believe these things are true, that is a very different perspective. That is a hope. That is our hope. So I will ask us, how might we live differently today if we really, really, really believe that these things are true? If we believe that there is a resurrection. If we believe that our hope is not ultimately in this life, it is in the one to come. That this life, as good as it can be, is not as good as it gets. How might we live differently? And as we wrap up, here's kind of the the one takeaway I I hope we'll hear this morning, is if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is true, then we can willingly and joyfully take up our crosses. What do I mean by that? Jesus in Luke 9.23, he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that's the life of the Christian right? To take up our crosses daily and to, to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, right? We're following Jesus who took up his cross. Why? So that all those who know and love God, who are in his covenant family, might be with him in eternity, in the resurrection. John three sixteen. we know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have <clears throat> eternal life, everlasting life. And as we've seen through this passage and the, and the passages leading up to this, in this beautiful way, Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus, right? He's taking up his cross daily. He's enduring, what, false accusations and angry mobs and corrupt religious officials and beatings and near-death experiences. Why? To share the good news of Jesus. That's what he's been called to. And friends, we too, if we know and love the Lord, if we are his disciples, that's what we're called to. To take up our crosses daily, to deny ourselves. And what does that look like for us? I have a few thoughts to share. It's not exhaustive, but here's here's a few thoughts. We live our lives not for our own good, but the good of others. We we seek, we're searching for ways that we can serve and give, ways that we can understand others more than being understood by others. Or much more practically, uh, for siblings, you can have the last piece of dessert. You can ride shotgun, even though it's my day, you got it. Don't worry about it. This means taking up our crosses. What does it mean? It means that when others disrespect us or harm us in a variety of ways, we don't need to get our pound of flesh, right? We can forgive just as we have been forgiven, even if it's not being asked for. We can, we can turn the other cheek, it means that when we 're in a disagreement with someone, a family member, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, whoever it might be, if it's really of no moral consequence, maybe we can just let them have their way. No, no problem. It means that our bucket lists they can take a back seat. Why? right? We don't need to check off everything we 've ever dreamed of doing and go to every location we've ever dreamed of because you know what's what's that rooted in it's in a you only live once mindset but if we believe in a resurrection we don't believe that you only live once right there is a resurrection plus in the new heavens and new earth all those things will be way better because no sin we will have all the time in the world and all of this is to god's glory and not our own so when we take up our crosses and deny ourselves, we are following, like Paul, in the footsteps of Jesus. We are staking our claim that this life is not all there is. There is a resurrection. Our hope is not in this life only, but in the one to come. But y'all, even if, even if we believe these things, even if we know these things, I might be the only one but it's easy to forget. Right? To go back so so quickly to self-preservation and to go back so quickly to seeking our own uh, pleasure and ease and comfort. It's all too easy to just totally forget about the hope that we have to not live out of that truth. It's it's easy for us, so easy, to just be discouraged and depressed. And I imagine that's probably how the Apostle Paul felt. As he is being dragged back into the barracks. Feeling probably like no one in the room really heard what he was trying to say. He'd been pouring everything out for Jesus and his gospel. And sometimes it felt like no one was getting it. But who should show up that very night? Look with me at verse 11. The following night the lord stood by him who is the lord it is jesus the risen lord jesus appears to paul in likely the depths of discouragement and perhaps depression and certainly physical pain and what does he give him but his very presence and he comforts him saying what take courage For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, he's saying, Paul, everything that I have ordained for you and for your life, it's going to come to completion. And so if you, friends, are weary this morning, if you are discouraged, if you are depressed, I want you I want to invite you to to hear these words from the risen Jesus as he were saying them to you. Here's what he says. And then we'll pray. Take courage. Keep going. I am with you. I've got you. Let me pray. Lord no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived or imagined all that you have in store for those who love you. We thank you, Lord, and we, we praise your name for the love that you have shown us in Jesus. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for his cross because by it, we know that we, we can be with you. That is our hope, Lord. There is a resurrection. This life is not all there is. So Lord, I just ask that you would form this truth of the resurrection deep in our hearts, deep in our minds, that we might live our lives in such a way that reflects it. These things are true. Lord, that you would be glorified in the way that we can deny ourselves. And seek to love and to give ourselves for the sake of others, just as you have done for us. So we will offer ourselves up to you now, Lord, and always would you form us into the image of your son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen.